I'm Susie Wiseman, and this is Jacobin Radio. I spoke to the superb legal analyst Harry Lippman to unpack the legal and constitutional questions raised in both the Mueller investigation and the confirmation hearings of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. The question that's on the table is, can the Constitution and the traditional practices of the American political system protect us from the march to authoritarianism? We then do an extended look at the political impact in Germany of the demonstrations in Chemnitz at the end of August that sent chills through Europe and the world. They reflect the ascent of the far right, including outright Nazis on the German political scene, manifested especially in the electoral successes of the AFD, Alternative for Deutschland, in the September 2017 elections. We talked to longtime analyst of the German far right, Volkhard Mosler, socialist activist in Chemnitz, Gabby Engelhardt, and Endo Callahan, a teacher and activist who's lived in Germany for 25 years. All this coming up on Jacobin Radio. This is Jacobin Radio, and I'm Susie Weissman. Very pleased to have Harry Littman with us for the first time. He is a lawyer, a law professor at Bolt, UCLA, UCSD, political commentator, often on MSNBC and CNN. He's a former U.S. attorney and deputy assistant attorney general, and his law practice focuses primarily on representing whistleblowers in lawsuits brought under the federal and various state false claims acts. And... He writes regularly. You can find his op-eds in the L.A. Times, Washington Post, New York Times, and we're very pleased that he's here today. More importantly, I guess, or say maybe as importantly, before law school, Harry Littman worked as a sports writer for Associated Press and then afterwards served as a law clerk, first to Judge Abner Mikva of the U.S. Court of Appeals, and he clerked for both Justice Thurgood Marshall of the U.S. Supreme Court and Justice Anthony Kennedy of the Supreme Court. Harry Littman, welcome to Jacobin Radio. Thanks, Susie. Good to be here. Thanks. I just wanted to ask before I actually introduce what we're going to talk about, were you there at the same time with Anthony Kennedy as Brett Kavanaugh or prior? I was prior, but only by a few years, and he was new, and I actually early on had a bit of a hand in helping to select clerks. So when he was an applicant and when he clerked, I first met him even before he clerked for Kennedy when he was clerking first for uh, Judge Stapleton in the Third Circuit and Judge Kaczynski in the Ninth Circuit. So we go pretty far back. Great. So we'll, we'll get to a lot of that. As I said in the introduction, I wanted to talk about you are a leading legal and constitutional scholar, and you also are really good at unpacking you know, some of the legal and political issues as they come forward. And today we certainly have a plethora of them uh, with the Trump administration that have issues that have the Constitution at their heart, like coming out of the convictions of Paul Manafort, Michael Cohen, and the central role today of the special counsel, and then, of course, as we've been mentioning, the nomination to the Supreme Court of Brett Kavanaugh, and even of the anonymous New York Times op-ed. Just another week in Trump's America. It's really hard to get through each week, isn't it? It's like you never know what the daily outrage is going to be. <laughs> right, and, they, and it always ends climatically on Friday with with all kinds of fireworks, or so it, so it seems, and you feel like we can't endure this pace much longer, but we have to. 
I know. I mean, do you remember that there used to be news-free days? <laughs> exactly. Or, and it also just seems to me that there are things that Trump does on any given Tuesday that for any of the past several presidents would have caused the impeachment drums to begin to beat very loudly, and they just happen, and that's one news cycle, maybe two. Well, I want to get on to that question, but first I think what might be really good for our listeners is just to get some of your legal expertise on issues like, for example, can the president be indicted while in office? And Michael Cohen seemed to implicate Trump in straightforward violations of the law, but the legal question then immediately arises, can Trump or any president be indicted and face criminal prosecution while in office. Right. And so you've cut to the chase of a very (laughs) nuanced and complicated one. I'd like to just first lay down a simple marker. Okay. Because so many of these questions, the response from Team Trump or Giuliani is some kind of, you know, categorical assertion that the president cannot be held accountable because and only because He's the president, and in particular, uh, Team Trump tries to assert it doesn't matter why he does things. If he's acting under an enumerated uh, power in the Constitution, we do not inquire into him as we do into any other citizen. Why did you do it? So you fire somebody or you pardon somebody, that's the end of the inquiry and no, no question about motive. And that's not that's a wrong and outlandish view which we'll probably be returning to, but the the basic point to start with is if the president like anyone else does things for out of corrupt motive or un, the president can exercise his constitutional powers unconstitutionally. That really shouldn't be in doubt, but it uh is or at least is argued. Now, your specific question Susie gets really tricky because There are constitutional considerations, but they're really kind of policy-driven constitutional considerations that have led the Office of Legal Counsel, the sort of brain trust of the Department of Justice, to conclude that the president can't be indicted, not because of any special textual reason. In fact, they say it's really not there, but just because of the paralyzing effect that a criminal indictment would have on a president while she or he is in office. Other people have concluded otherwise, including Brett Kavanaugh when he worked for Judge Starr, including Leon Jaworski as Watergate special prosecutor. But there's at least an argument, and it's significant because it's more or less DOJ policy, which one anticipates... (laughs) Bob Mueller will follow, that an indictment of the president while in office, not after, but while in office, is constitutionally prohibited for these sort of policy reasons. So are you saying, I mean, and we're going to go deeper into this, but that Mueller himself cannot, if the investigation leads there, then he cannot issue an indictment? So I'm not quite saying that. Everyone's (laughs) assuming with good reason that Mueller, as a straight shooter, good soldier, guy who stays in his lane, will follow DOJ policy. But it's not, first of all, that that policy is itself understood to be subject to extraordinary circumstances exception, and he may conclude things are pretty extraordinary here. And second, it's not clear the, to the extent it binds him 
uh, as the special counsel under a special regulatory grant of power. But everyone's working assumption has been, with good reason, that just because this is DOJ-stated policy, that Mueller would, in fact, choose not to indict. I think it gets very, very rich and interesting if Mueller concludes, as many people you know, have to date, that he's sort of justice and rule of law is only hope. Uh, which is a, a possible scenario, you know, depending on what happens in the midterms, say. But uh, everyone's operating assumption has been, yes, he, it won't happen uh, just because he'll follow DOJ policy. That policy itself is soft and subject to interpretation, but he is, you know, right now working under it. And so I see there's a narrow opening. You could see it happening, but that's been a fairly consistent operating assumption among most observers. Okay, well, let's move to the next sort of question. And and I'm going to come back to some of the things that you raised. But I wanted to ask as well, whether or not the president has the power to pardon himself. You know, this has been raised. And of course, like what you just talked about in terms of the indicting, sometimes, you know, there are those who say that they can do it, but it would be unwise to do so unwise in every aspect, legally and politically. What about on this one on the pardoning? Right. So here we are back to my first precept. It's simple. And I think, you know, we should just bear it in mind because there's just so much fog that has been put out. Mm -hmm. So principle number one is he may not do it. He may not do it constitutionally if he's doing it in order to keep himself and his family from harm's way, which it almost looks by definition it is. You can imagine an argument from the president saying, well, it's really not that. It's to save the country, you know, the Sturm und Drang of the same reasons that Ford pardoned Nixon. So the first principle is he cannot simply do it. It doesn't go without saying that he has the power. And second, I think if you read about the pardon power and the Federalist debates and all the hoary uh, history, it's likely that it's almost per se a problem because the very notion here of a pardon is to be able to, first of all, it's not impossible, but unusual, funky, to (laughs) pardon in, in this anticipatory way. And then second, it's supposed to be a kind of sign of both forgiveness from the country and remorse from the uh, felon. And, you know, it, it's, it's likely that almost by definition it wouldn't qualify here. But in any event, if, if he does it for the reasons we anticipate his doing it, you know, we, all, we go to Armageddon here <laughs> and um, Mueller indicts him and Trump Jr. and he just issues a blanket pardon and says, I can because I can. I think that the vast weight of legal, the right answer, the vast weight of legal authority, and probably, fingers crossed, probably the Supreme Court all would hold that it's not proper. And even thinking back, you know, to Nixon, it was Ford who pardoned him. It wouldn't have been Nixon himself who would. Do you think he would have dared to do it or thought about it at the time? It's so funny. I mean, we don't think of Nixon as being a retiring and uh, (laughs) passive fellow, but there's so many ways in which, you know, there were lines that he didn't come within a mile of that Trump crosses 
daily. Um, For one, he had some respect for the sort of institution of the presidency and, and, you know, on what would happen to the government after he was gone. And for two, he just wasn't, he was a lawyer and he just wasn't brazen in the same way. Would Nixon have done it? Well, I, I think it's not clear. It's kind. It's kind of rests with the historians, but it, but it's arguable that he did do it. That uh, there's some suggestion that it, that he at least brokered through a third party a the pardon from Ford. I do think we think in the in the you know right now there's a lot of, of sort of blood bloodthirstiness, and I'm I understand it. I probably have some to see <laughs> Trump brought to justice, but I do think we think. In retrospect, Ford's call was the right one, and you know it, it let us it let the country turn the page. So you, you can imagine a scenario like that with Trump. But would Nixon have dared it? You know, maybe he was leaving the presidency in disgrace to have to then face a jail sentence. I think would would have felt to him, you know, something he should he should be spared. And, you know, it's interesting because if you do it in general with crimes, if you do them through a third party, it doesn't matter. It's still, there's still criminal liability. But the blatant, I hereby, I Donald Trump, hereby pardon Donald Trump, would be, I think, a step too far in constitutional terms. This is Jacobin Radio, and I'm Susie Wiseman. With Harry Littman, a law professor, commentator, a judicial legal scholar, and we're talking about the intersection literally of uh, the Constitution and the politics of the day. Harry Littman, you just gave a very good answer on the issue of the pardons. Now, closely related to that, of course, uh, to the criminal prosecution of a sitting president and his uh, ability or not to pardon himself is whether or not he can be required to testify or, in other words, to be subpoenaed. Giuliani says Trump will not answer any questions about the obstruction of justice. Could Mueller subpoena him and force him to do so? Yeah, I think the short answer is yes. You know, in general, Giuliani has has just well, a bit of a mystery, you know. He, he was a somewhat respectable U.S. attorney, and he's just He's just been a spectacular buffoon ever since taking the stage in this last round of being his mouthpiece and, and you know, having to withdraw questions all the time, staking out legal claims that are, you know, preposterous, laughable. And, I, you know, I think it's best to, to give them zero weight. But here's a, here's a concrete example where I think there would be a battle. It could go six months. It's interesting to try to game out tactically whom that battle and those six months more favors. But yes, I think the at the end of the day, the courts would, would rule that the subpoena must be followed. To sketch it out briefly, we have a unanimous Supreme Court having held that a sitting president has to sit for a deposition in a civil case. We have a unanimous Supreme Court having held that a sitting president has to produce evidence in a criminal case the question of whether a sitting president has to sit for testimony in a criminal case sort of threads the needle, but the reasoning of the two cases I mentioned seems to lead very strongly to that conclusion. Now, you know, it was a different court, and the current court is much more bullish on executive power, but you had Brett Kavanaugh saying, you know, the U.S. v. Nixon precedent is one of the four most important of all time. I think you couldn't really have a principled means of distinguishing the cases. 
And I think that, that when it got to the court, not only would they hold it because it's the accurate statement under the law, but I think they would see it as a kind of uh, almost compulsory act of their own institutional credibility to hold for Mueller. And I think John Roberts would be at great pains to try to make it close to unanimous. So he's got a, he's got a few tough uh, tough justices to try to wrangle there. Yeah. So I think that's it's the right answer, and it's the answer that the Supreme Court would give, which raises the question, why isn't Mueller doing it? Yeah. And I had an op-ed recently saying, okay, enough of this nonsense where Giuliani and Trump, you know, decide what they might deign to answer and what topics, et cetera, and, you know, let's have the law prevail here. I presume there are questions about what happens in these six months, or or do I keep my powder dry because I have such a wealth of evidence? Things we don't know. Always the important thing to keep in mind with Mueller. So much we don't know, so much he does know. But I think it's tactics rather than law that has stayed his hand. I think he thinks accurately, and his sort of brain trust, starting with Michael Dreeben from the Solicitor General's office, thinks that the court would uphold a subpoena, and I think it would. Okay, well, what about, you know, this is just a clarification. There's a lot of confusion about, or there is some confusion, let's say, about the special counsel law in the case, because this it was opened up over the investigation of possible Russian interference in the election in 2016 and the possible collusion of Trump. But to many, it seems like a fishing expedition and is going in many different directions. Is that something that, that Mueller has the ability to do, to take it anywhere that it goes? Totally. I mean, these are just PR inroads that Trump and Giuliani have been able to, you know, the counterpoint to what I said about Giuliani as buffoon is the (laughs) posit that all they're trying to do is keep, you know, the base in line and, and say things like this. Prosecutors fish, and that's how they get crimes, including, you know, the most important crimes in our lifetimes that are that are extolled. You go where the evidence leads you, and that's precisely his marching orders. His marching orders are, and three courts now have made this clear and upheld it, are to start there, but then anything that grows out of it, what what are you supposed to do? Just leave it behind and say, never mind, when there are federal crimes. The many crimes that that he's already unearth, you know, including Manafort most recently, those aren't specifically about collusion with Russia, but the, but in, in trying to go in the heartland of his commission, he comes across these things, which he uses either for leverage for his main ballywick or because they're crimes and you prosecute crimes. And of course, there's always what he's begun to do, and and which really is a scary tactic for Trump. You farm them out to other offices that aren't limited in any way. But the fishing expedition claim is really a bum rap. This has been a much shorter and much more successful special prosecutor's operation measured historically relative to others. 
you know, Whitewater went 12 years, yeah. Red Stuff next to nothing, but, uh, but others, others as well. And, you know, this is now a really big, sprawling investigation that's been very successful in very serious matters, and it's just a, a total political slogan, but it bears no resemblance to the, you know, actual law enforcement bona fides of what he's doing. I want okay. to get to two other mm-hmm. big issues, and one is on the expansion of presidential powers. Kavanaugh kind of represents the vanguard of an expansive interpretation of presidential powers. And it would be interesting to compare what you just said about his role under Starr. But nonetheless, this would effectively put the president above the law, meaning, I guess, specifically that it would be impossible to bring charges against the president because that would prevent, you know, as you just said, the president from pursuing his duties. John Dean this week said under Judge Kavanaugh's recommendation, if the president shot someone in cold blood on Fifth Avenue, that president could not be prosecuted while in office. And Trump always says that on the campaign trail in a slightly different context. But can you explain what Kavanaugh's proposing in this respect and what constitutional basis he has, if any, for it? Okay. So first, the most extreme view and all that John Dean is referring to, it's not, it's not trivial, but it's what we talked about. Yeah. You can't prosecute him while in office. But the day he leaves, you can, and arguably even you could indict him immediately, but just keep it sealed until he left. So that just is a very kind of serious hypothetical involving the question, can he be indicted while in office? As to Kavanaugh's views, and they are what matters the most, and it's not certain he would take these on the Supreme Court, but the kind of royalist view that, you know, has been in vogue with at least the young, when, when he was a young Turk and um, among uh, na- the people who have now ascended to the positions of power went something like this. Well, Article 2 says the executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States. So that means, well, all executive power. If it's executive power, it has to be the president. Nobody can contradict it. But there's so much constitutional history, so many decisions, so so much tradition and culture that really makes that kind of view untenable. And I think Judge Kavanaugh himself would be very bullish on presidential power, would reach a lot of decisions that would be troublesome, especially for you know, a president as corrupt as Trump. But I don't think he would hold such an absolutist view. But that's the notion of the of the view. It's very sort of simplistic, by which I don't mean I don't mean to call it stupid for that reason, but it is simplistic. Hey, executive power, anything that's executive power, it's the president's end of the story. Do you prosecute? Do you pardon? Do you whatever? If the president says so, that's what that's what the Constitution permits. I don't think it's tenable and at all sophisticated as far as, you know, constitutional history and tradition goes. But there's a there that's the textual hook. And I'm also wanna wanna underscore I, I don't know for certain that that Kavanaugh himself would be so extreme. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, well the last question really that and it's kind of an area of questions and it goes to the hearings that we're, that we're now watching, yeah. certain people have called them kabuki theater. Chemerinsky wrote an op-ed on that. Many of the senators have, have said that. But it's also looking at whether or not the constitutional law is a cover for politics or business as usual. And it also raises, of course, um, the question about the legitimacy of the Supreme Court itself yeah. um, after a hearing like this. And Erwin Chemerinsky, in a panel on the role of the Supreme Court during the Bush administration, said, 
he could, with nearly 100 percent accuracy and certainty, predict how the court would rule on a full range of critical issues that it was facing. And that's because he knew the politics of the justices. And of course, all of us are taught from grade school on that they're impartial and that it's just the Constitution. But, you know, here we're seeing something completely different. And not only that, something else that came up this week is that who is it that suggests who these uh, nominees are? And it's lately been the Federalist Society, and they've been devoted to producing justices that will carry out a far-right political agenda, and that's the agenda of the Kochs and others. So, you know, I think that uh, Senator Whitehouse began the hearings doing just exactly the right thing, which was pointing out the sort of role of uh, how they've decided in in a lot of cases and pointing out that these uh, Republican-appointed justices were there to carry out this extreme pro-capitalist politics as well as the far-right social agenda. So given that, how do you see the Democrats' role in the hearings themselves? Is this as better than it has been in the past, or are they just playing along? And are they really exposing the positions of justices like Kavanaugh uh, rather than just trying to catch them in a particular view? Well, that's a heck of a question. <laughs> um, I largely I agree on on one hand, and so Kabuki theater, yes. I mean, it is a thoroughly broken process. All the things we were talking about with Kavanaugh are just secondary to what his substantive views on the Constitution are. And there's been a a kind of script that has taken hold that he, you know, predictably followed that makes it hard in the best of times with the best of questioners to pierce. But we don't have the best of questioners. We have senators, very few of whom are at all qualified to kind of follow up and really force a, a real answer. I think the Democrats really missed Frank in here. I, White House, <laughs> I thought, was fairly effective, but a little bit, you know, arcane in where he was. I mean, I do think, so the Dems made this interesting decision to try to have a little civil disobedience because they were being railroaded mm-hmm. on this document question, which was completely outrageous. Of the, No one's ever been put up there without getting a full uh, record, and the very few things that that you know were that emerged made it clear that it's it, it would be so important for the senators to actually have these kinds of you know real indications from from Judge Kavanaugh's prior service to actually question him about, and in fact, it forced him to certain kinds of answers or uncomfortable positions at least but but in brief other than that flare-up i think they kind of played along because they they're really it's no choice it's so tragic really you Mm -hmm. have you have a a razor-thin majority that represents a distinct minority of the american people but they just force it through including you know procedural irregularities that that really impoverish the process even more i do think it's thoroughly broken they 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 were did not make inroads of the sort of thing they need to do and you know it looks like they they didn't do much to to shake loose the basic dynamic the only thing they could really do and some some senators have flirted within this in the past but they always shy away well two points to make one is Senators really should be able to say, you're, you've got the burden of proof, and if you don't come forward with certain information, that'll be enough reason not to vote for you. That's one. And then second, it has proven to be a grievous 
mistake to to have gotten rid of the the filibuster hmm. because it's not simply power politics it's just it would force some kind of real debate and consideration right now we're looking at the distinct prospect that this con- that justices Kagan Sotomayor Breyer and Ginsburg are just going to be basically dispensable we're going to lose all their all the benefit of their wisdom and thoughts because they're going to be, you know, rolled over. There's just, you know, going to be no reason to consider them. And by the way, the last time this happened to the court was 80 years ago. You had a conservative hegemony, and it was a very discredited court historically. That's the Lochner court. It's not good for the court. It's not good for the country. It's not good for the Senate process if it can just sort of roll through in raw politics, especially on a 51 49 basis. You just, you know, they never needed to give any airing or respect to other views, and they didn't. They, you know, it's been a really raw display of politics by the Republicans over the last three or four years, starting with the Garland nomination. Brilliantly done, and I, I'm so glad that you brought up that there is a precedent for this in the in the Lochner court, and, and it just raised the question of whether or not, you know, the court can survive this kind of clearly political action. And you said it like, 80 years later, of course, we're back with it. But I guess just in a 30 seconds or so, what do you think about the future legitimacy of the court given this kind of action? Yeah, I mean, they really do have a lot of capital built up. I kind of thought that legitimacy was out the window with Bush v. Gore, but they somehow, you know, and maybe because of the relative low standing of the other branches, but I somehow think that, you know, there'll be some missteps that, that happen with such a firm majority, but basically I don't see the court's essential credibility being deeply eroded. I think they'll still look to them. And and remember, you know, this is going to matter deeply, deeply, deeply on 20% of the cases before the court. But, you know, on 80% of the workaday cases, it won't be so lockstep. My best guess is, you know, the court will continue to more or less enjoy its institutional respect. Well, we have to leave it there. And thank you so much. That was excellent. And um, I hope that we can have you back. And for the listeners, you can find Harry Littman on MSNBC and CNN and the pages of the Washington Post, New York and Times. Fox. Sometimes Fox. Oh, my God. Fox as well. All right. So I some- try when I can. <laughs> <laughs> if they'll let you on. But now also right here. And we hope to have you back. Harry Littman. Thank you so much for joining us today on Jacobin Radio. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Weisman. And we are going to talk about Germany today on the show. There's been large demonstrations of the far right in Chemnitz, and it sent chills through Europe and the world. The demonstrations expressed the ascent of the far right, including outright Nazis, on the German political scene. And that was manifested especially in the electoral successes in the September 2017 elections of the AFD. All of our guests today are in Germany, and we're going to get them to literally explicate what's going on. We are very lucky to have with us long-term analyst of the German far-right Volkert Mosler, socialist activist in Chemnitz, Gabby Engelhardt, and Einde O'Callaghan, who was with us once before. He is Irish but has been living 
in Saxony for more than 25 years and was a member of the Saxon State Executive. Volkart Mosler is from Frankfurt and also an original member of SDS from 1963 to 1969. That's historic. Gabby Engelhart's a longtime socialist and is in Aufstehen gegen Rassismus. The first thing is that for our listeners, we've seen, you know, the pictures and the accounts in the press about these far-right demonstrations in Chemnitz. So we should really just talk about what happened. And of course, for those who don't know, Chemnitz is a city of 250,000 in the eastern state of Saxony. What provoked these demonstrations? Yeah, what happened was that after the city festival, some people had an argument about, I'm not sure about what, and there was a fight. And uh, during the fight, one person was stabbed and died from the injuries. And two other people were injured as well. And because of that, the Nazis and the AFD and the right-wing football hooligans uh, tried to profit from this, and they tried to call for action. So they blamed all refugees for being criminals and called for demonstrations against violence. In the demonstrations, first you saw a surprisingly large right-wing demonstration and then counter-demonstrations. Who organized it? Who was responsible for it? And what was the reaction of the governmental authorities to this demonstration? The local Nazis organized them, and local AFD uh, people organized the demos, the spontaneous demos, but it was as if they had waited for something to happen to call to arms, I should say. And the local authorities were overwhelmed by the outcome. They didn't expect so many Nazis to come. A lot of right-wing people, Nazis and football hooligans, marched through the streets and chased and hunted foreign-looking people. And the police was not in a position to do anything about it. When videos were made of right-wing people, Nazis, hunting people... And maybe we could get Volkart to come in on this, too. Chemnitz is located, as I mentioned, in Saxony. It's the center of the far-right strength since the unification of East and West Germany, maybe even before. And maybe you could begin to talk about the development of the right. And for our listeners, we've mentioned AFD. It translates to alternative for Deutschland or for Germany. And they did win, I think, what was it, over 12% in the last election. And that was a surprise for everyone, even though we've seen the rise of the populist and the far-right forces throughout Europe and now in the United States. It's something more meaningful, I guess, when it happens in Germany. So maybe you could take it from there and just talk about what ideas they're putting forward and why is it in Saxony that they are so prominent, but starting with Volkart. The ideas they put forward is to blame uh, Muslim people for their misery. That's the basic idea. They say uh, there's a danger of Islamization, that Germany is being taken over by Islam refugees or Islam people generally, and they try to gain ground on pure racist propaganda uh, a campaign, uh, which was, of course, killing of one uh, person by 
people who came from Afghanistan, the young bloke who came from Afghanistan, who had been got himself into this fight or struggle uh, with uh, with the others. Actually, the victim was also a black man who would be chased from the Nazis if they had met him in other other circumstances. But now he is a their victim. They claim him their their friend uh, is dead now. So this is uh, exactly what the campaign of the Nazis and the AfD is, is, is doing. They try to scapegoat Islam and Arab people, all miseries, uh, which exist. One thing, of course, the other thing is why Saxony yes. and why East Germany. And I think uh, there's, of course, some objective reasons in conditions of, of East Germany, which do not fit for the same extent to West Germany. This is Basically, that, that 30 years after unification, there is still unequal rights, uh, economic and social rights uh, between West and uh, East Germany. There are no equal rights. Uh, ten wages are generally 10% lower in East Germany. Also, old age pensions are still uh, quite a lot lower, uh, although they had promised the contrary. So that's what call in the beginning had promised them that they will have equal rights. That was the reason for the revolution, actually. The working class in East Germany wanted to have equal social rights with the workers in the West, same wages, same holiday uh, and sickness payments and so on, things which they didn't have before. So 30 years afterwards, it's still not fulfilled. And therefore, I think this is one of the reasons of frustration in East Germany, which uh, we do not experience uh, to the same extent in West Germany. Can I ask a question about that? Because we don't really know. So are these different wage, say minimum wage or average wage in each region, as well as pension? Yeah. Are these governed by at the state level or are they at a federal level? And is it legal in that sense to have uh, it be 10 percent lower in East Germany? Wages are not governed by the federal state. They are dealt with locally and regionally through the unions mm. or the non-existing unions uh, yeah. in East Germany. This is uh, part of the problem that the unions are very weak in East Germany. And the question of the federal state, who have, had promised, as I said before, equal pensions, but they didn't fulfill this. This is legal. This is extremely interesting, and some could say it is even a legacy of the Stalinist government before that produces a population that's incredibly receptive to these far-right ideas. I don't know you know, if we really want to go there, but I want to understand it a little bit better, uh, what the immediate drivers are of the rise of the right. And of course, we know that in 2015, Angela Merkel allowed an influx of a million, I think, Syrians. There was this huge sort of welcome campaign, and the idea idea from the West was that this was an exemplar of the way to behave. But then all of a sudden we see AFD winning so much in the parliamentary elections. So maybe we could just go a little bit deeper into, say, the policies, austerity policy in particular, that hit German workers very hard as a kind of, you know, catalyst for the dramatic ascent of the right. Is that the case? Maybe could you talk a little bit about this? Yeah, I think the, the cuts and the austerity measures you talked about uh, were decided and put into practice in 2004-05. Uh, 
uh, in these years, and it led to a left rise of the left party uh, was a result of this. There was huge protests in the streets, were not supported by the unions, but still huge social unrest at that time, which led to the building of the left party and a rise of the left party until crisis of 2008-9. can say that 2010-11 was a turn after the crisis when there, were rights, where there was a change of politics. And I think there are two elements in this uh, which led to the right-wing rise. One is what I would call a social contract between the unions and the government during the crisis, which helped the working class to survive the crisis much better than all other crises before, because there was no rise of unemployment mm. in 2008 or 2009, although there was a deep, deep crisis of 5% of the BSP. So this was five times bigger, the crisis, than all the others before, but still no rise of the unemployment. It was because of the unemployment benefits were extended to 36 months, which used to be 12 months. Mm. So you get a wage, 90% of the income uh, without working uh, and still being employed, but the state pays the wages for the employer. So this uh, to a situation where the working class was not sacked. 1.5 million metal workers, for example, were saved from being sacked to this. And it led to a closing the relation between the Social Democratic Party, which was in government at the time, and the unions. So then afterwards, the unions paid, of course, for this by not fighting for wages. They, they stopped fighting for higher wages and uh, real income stagnated or even fell back. This was the price the unions were being paid, but it was more or less supported by the majority of the working class, which had good jobs, but uh, there is also the precarious working class of 20 or 25 percent who were really getting the worst side of all of it, where wages went down quite quite strongly. So this division of the working class was part was also was also very important for to understand what happened in the working class and the unions paid for not fighting for higher wages anymore and so you had uh, a so but you had a very one, long one period of wage suppression is what you're saying but at the same time the benefits somewhat made up for it so that people didn't you know starve they just saw their living standards cut and this i think you're implying volkart that this led to a measure of stability that perhaps we wouldn't see elsewhere but please go on because i want you to take it from there to kind of talk about the main political beneficiary of this, which is the AFD, mm-hmm. and, and what yeah, that... Yeah. Uh, yeah. The rise of the left was stopped. I explained to you now what made life more difficult for the left party. Okay. It was on the rise until now 2009. In the election of 2009, they got 12, nearly 12% of the vote, the highest vote they ever had. And uh, there was one thing was in 2010-11, the unions wouldn't affiliate themselves with the left anymore. They would uh, turn to the Social Democratic Party and stop fighting other social issues, which made life more uh, difficult for the left party. That was one point. But the other is, uh, I think, equally important is there was a rise of racist propaganda supported by all, nearly all the liberal media, 
and also by uh, high-ranking politicians, uh, Minister of Interior and so on, by a bloke called Larazin. He's so he still is a member of the Social Democratic Party. Yeah. This, and, you're uh, talk, can you say his name one more time? Sarazin uh, was, oh, the, was uh, the Minister of Finance in the Berlin Got uh, local or regional government. Yes. And he is a member of the Social Democratic Party. He's not of the federal okay, government. Okay, okay. And he's just, he's just written a couple of government. books, right? Yeah, and he on. is a member of the SPD, Social Democratic Party. And he then uh, became, in 2009 or 10, he became, he got into the board of directors of the federal uh, bank ah. in Germany by the high posts uh, in the finance sector. And he wrote then the book, uh, Germany is... Uh, abolishing itself. It's, yeah. uh, Deutschland schafft sich ab. It's uh, the uh, translation. So, meaning that uh, with the Muslim, a lot of Muslim people coming here, Germany is getting poorer and more stupid. That's what he said in his book, basically. Oh. So, this, he sold nearly two million copies of this book with the help of all the media because I think basically the liberal bourgeois press and also Big parts of the bourgeoisie would like to have the, the left party stopped by a racist campaign, and that's what well, they efficiently did. I think this this helped then the AFD to come out. The AFD were the winners of this racist campaign. And so um, that's what I would argue. And that in 2013, the AFD was started by a group of right-wing professors from the Christian Democratic Party and the Liberal Party, who split away from those parties of the conservative right, and uh, started an anti-Euro party. The AFD started as an anti-Euro party already with a racist core, but a small core of fascists inside, who then, in the years after this, in 2014 mainly, the Pegida, with the Pegida demonstrations in East Germany starting, building on Sarrazin and the anti-Muslim propaganda of the media, and they started from building. This movement is calling itself a movement against the Islamization of Europe, translated into English. So, so um, and they were quite successfully. They had uh, big demonstrations of 30,000, 20,000 at their highest year in January 2015. It was, yeah. And they um, spread also to other towns. This was a mass racist movement started not by AFD, but by Pegida, who were people from other fascist groups uh, who had been there before in East Germany. So this helped the right-wing, up-to-then small part of fascist wing in the AFD, to gain grounds and gain very quickly support, get new members from the right into the party. And in 2015, there was a break. This was all before the refugee wave started. This was in summer 2015, the AFD had a party congress where the right wing won a very, very important victory. Uh, which said we have to open the party up for uh, ex-fascists from fascist parties. Up to then, they members of the NPD and the Rep Republicano Republicans, two fascist parties, old fascist parties, were not allowed to join the AFD. But the party congress then decided to open up, uh, which then flooded, of course, the party with all those 
fascist elements uh, and the liberal, uh, neoliberal anti-Euro wing, the split of, who had split from, from the Christian Democrats before, they were more or less chucked out of the party or they left the party because they lost this important vote and they, it was not their project. It was a sort of UKIP type of party before uh, where then the fascists took over big chunks of the party. There is still this struggle in the AfD, but the fascists with Chemnitz, the fascist element has had a break, big breakthrough and the leadership more or less affiliated with people who, who roamed through the streets showing the Hitler salute. This is really good, uh, Volkar, and it's really helping us to understand this. I want to get to the fight against it, but before you do that, because you're really giving us a full understanding of the sort of the spectrum of the far right, but what has been the reaction of the political establishment to the rise of the right? Many people blame the Merkel government for paving the way by its overly liberal policy toward the refugees in 2015. And you've mentioned a little bit about the Social Democrats. Maybe you could give us, and if either of the others want to jump in, that's fine too, a kind of overview of where these forces are, both the Merkel government and the Social Democrats, and what kind of positions they've taken on the rise of the right and the threat that they represent. Social Democrats had their big defeat in the years between 2002 and 2010, uh, when they pushed through austerity measures, which were unseen before. Any conservative, the coal government was never able to do such big cuts in the social welfare state as the Schroeder-Fischer government, the red-green government, the early 2000 years. So the tenor years, then crisis reached to the conservatives up to 2013 until the AfD started. Merkel looked as if she was a big winner and in Germany everything seemed to be okay. But I would say that the two factors I had been mentioned before that the offensive of the left was more or less stopped consciously by the ruling class and the liberal press with their counter-racist offensive, and also by the new unity between the Social Democratic Party and the unions, that the left party came into a crisis in 2011-12. There was a crisis of leadership and crisis of confidence, this was, on the one side, the crisis of the left. At this time, the right wing, the AfD, was founded on an anti-Euro basis, but then quickly turning onto racism, which was delivered to them on a plate by the liberal press and by the uh, Minister of Interior and uh, all the others. They all loved uh, Sarrazin at the time. Sarrazin now wrote a new book. It just It came out loud last month. Uh-huh. Now they all rage about him. Yeah, the Spiegel, Spiegel is one of the most read uh, liberal paper, weekly paper, Der Spiegel, yeah. and uh, the Mirror in English. Huh? So in 2011 and 2010, they had a, on their head cover a, something supporting the fight against Islam with minarets and it was a terrible cover. And last week they had on the new book of Sarrazin, they uh, criticized him very, very strongly. You wouldn't recognize this this paper. You know, I think what happened in between exactly is that the AFD got out of hand. Uh, the conservatives loved the reason as long as it would stop the Social Democratic Party, but they don't like the AFD with their fascist elements in it and the fascists gaining ground on this. 
to kill the uh, Merkel government. I mean, this is what exactly is happening, that the Merkel government got weaker and weaker. The Christian Democrats losing ground now. This is a big crisis, not only in the Social Democratic Party. The real big cuts had been done before. There was an upturn, an economic upturn since 2010, but it was on a very low level, 2% real growth each year. So this looked marvelous, but uh, it didn't reach out to big parts of the working class. I told you that the unions were very very defensive on wages, and the split in the working class was getting deeper and deeper with the precarious sector, really paying a high price for this 2008. Please, Endo Callahan. Yeah, I just want to add a little bit. You asked earlier about why Saxony. Yes. And I think one of the reasons for why Saxony is that over the years since reunification, the authorities tended to blind eye to the development of the right. Whenever the minister, even when there were pogrom-like attacks like in Hoyersberde, it was always, oh, that's not typical of Saxony, and so on. And the other thing is that the CDU has been in government for 30 years now, nearly 30 years since reunification, and basically up until the current prime minister, basically whenever they mentioned right-wing extremism, they also mentioned left-wing extremism, although the number of crimes, if you like, that are attributed to the left have always been much at a much lower level than the attacks and other crimes that are attributed to the right. I'm talking about political crimes. And we're, of course, used um, to this. We saw so, Trump do the same thing about the Nazi. The yeah, Nazis it's a little yeah. bit like this, but yeah. it's been going on for 30 years. Right. And we also had the situation that here in Chemnitz, there is, as Gabi mentioned earlier, there is a right-wing a fascist scene that has been also developing without really anything much being done about it. I mean, the NSU terrorist group who murdered 10 people and planted several bombs and so on were able to live in Chemnitz for about three or four years quite openly before the time when they were surrounded by people who were actually in the pay of the uh, political police, the Verfassungsschutz, as it's called here. So the authorities have turned a blind eye to the right and to some extent by paying their informers who were leading fascists, they were actually encouraging the development of the right. So uh, I would say the creation of this sort of underground scene they rarely came out into the open or at least whenever they came out into the open we were able to push them back but Uh, the problem is that um, this scene existed and has now seized its chance right and so even though as Volkart said earlier the young man that was killed actually himself used to be beaten up by fascists So the next question is how to fight the right. And there's different emphases, and all of you are are very much involved in it. And I'm very grateful for the analysis so that we understand in terms of strategy. But from what I understand and from the reading, that the far left seems to be divided, at least in terms of emphasis on how to fight the right, especially on the issue of immigration. This is a key issue for Germany, but also for Europe and also for the United States. And one important strain emphasized anti-racist 
criticism directly, pointing out especially that the timing of the rise of the far right and the AFD correlates directly with the opening to refugees in 2015, which would imply that it isn't seen just as an economic issue. I think we've heard quite a bit about that. But now we also see, you know, the mobilizing of 70,000 young people, students, especially in counter demonstrations of the left to the demonstrations of the right. And then a second important strain has focused on the way in which the austerity and wage freeze that has been in place at least since the start of the 21st century initially imposed by the SPD, the government of Gerhard Schroeder, has led working people into anger and protest, something that we're also seeing elsewhere. And the right has been able to mobilize this by offering anti-immigration as a way to sustain living standards of the native working class. I think Volkart has given us a couple of insights into this. But supporters of this view call for the left to demand anti-austerity to counter the right appeal to anti-immigration. And then we have this new formation, Aufstehen gegen Rassismus, pardon my German, but led by uh, leading representatives of the left's uh, De Linke, Sarah Wagenacht, and Oscar Lafontaine, former SPD leaders. That isn't Aufstehen gegen Rassismus. It's just simply called Aufstehen. Aufstehen. Okay, so great. They've adopted a name similar to an anti-racist organization. And it means basically stand up or stand, you know, forward. Stand up, yeah. Stand up. So maybe we could just, if I could get your comments on this from all three of you, it would be a great way to sort of tie it all together and wrap the show. Andy, you want to start? I think that's automatic turning to racism, but it is uh, a deliberate decision to turn to racism. It's not just uh, a case of uh, being poor or being uh, hit by austerity measures, uh, you have to make a deliberate step to be a racist and to react like this. And uh, that's why we have built a stand-up to racism to fight the racist ideas behind all of this. And I have to come back a little to what you said earlier, that Saxony has always been a far-right center Uh, which I think is not true, because we had different times where, uh, for example, during the 89 revolution uh, in East Germany, Saxony was uh, the center, uh, the forefront and the center of the upheaval of the revolution. Mm. And also, again, uh, when people were not happy about the outcome, uh, we had the Monday demonstrations uh, two or three years later, We had a lot of campaigning uh, when uh, what Volkart has just explained, when uh, the hard fear measurements were installed, the austerity measures uh, by the red-green government. There was a huge uprise here, in in, in particular in in the east and in Saxony at the center. And so they had to bring in racism, as Volkart has just explained. So that's why we as Aufstehen Against Racism, we emphasize that uh, you have to fight against racism, you have to fight against Islamophobia, and of course you have to, to create a basis for a common struggle against austerity, but together uh, with refugees and uh, with people who came 20 or 30 years ago. Yeah? So it's not enough to just fight uh, austerity, you also have to fight racism, and that's I think that's what, what, what we try to do and to, to organize, yeah. And, you know, yes, go ahead. Yeah, uh, so, so 
I think the big austerity cuts were done by the red green government, not by Merkel. Mm. It's very important. Right. And the Merkel government did cuts in 2011 only against the unemployed and the precarious workers, not against the better off workers. They saved them from this. So this was part of the deal, what I said, the, the social contract between the unions and the coalition government of social democrats and Christian democrats at the time. And we have then the years from 2013 onwards with the AFD being founded on a more and more racist basis, which was the basic was laid by a quite conscious racist campaign by the liberals and by the Christian Democrats at the time. And when we come to the situation at the moment, you ask about the reaction of the conservatives, social democrats, and so on. I want to say something about the conservatives and the liberals. Uh, I said already that the Spiegel and the liberal press now don't support the AFD anymore because they don't want a strong fascist right. At the same time, I think a bit similar to what happened with the liberal press and Trump, yeah? At the same time, we have the Conservative Party completely split between Merkel and Seehofer. Seehofer is trying to win the Bavarian uh, regional election uh, in next month, with politics uh, based more or less. You can't make a difference between his politics on racism and the AFD at the moment. Yeah? He said something like that migration is the mother of all political problems. Yeah. He comes out with things like this. So... And he attacks Merkel all the time. And at the same time, the polls for his Christian Social Union in Bavaria went from 45% to 35%. This is quite a desperate situation for the right wing of the Christian Democratic Party, who tries to over racism of the, of the AFD. But I think either he's trying to go for an Austrian type of government, a coalition between the Conservatives and the AFD, because he can't do this with Merkel. But I think the more likely thing is he he's trying to explain why he's losing votes in Bavaria, although he's doing such good politics as an openly racist uh, attacks on, on refugees. Merkel is guilty of this. That's what he says, more or less. With the Chancellor of Merkel still go governing in Germany, he can't win the Bavarian elections. That's why he has to do, get rid of Merkel. That's what is happening in the Conservative Party. Okay. You mentioned Zara Wagenknecht yeah. and her movement. Right. They have taken up the economic issues, but they are making concessions on the question of racism. Racism is not a priority for them. They're yeah. trying to win back AFD voters on a purely economic basis. And I think that's a serious error. Absolutely. Because you have to undermine also the ideological basis of the racism. But that's possibly a topic for another day. Where Absolutely. We, uh, and if this movement uh, develops further. We're going to have to leave it there. But I want to thank all of you for staying up so late in Germany. And also for, you know, I know that it was the end of a very long day. You had a big public meeting on uh, populism and fascism. We, we can have chance to, to get active and to uh, to fight racism and fascism. And, and this is what we had uh, a very good tradition in the past when we stopped the Nazis in Dresden. 
some years ago. And that's a very good way to end it, you know, on a note of hope and fight back, which is what I like. And I want to thank you again, longtime analyst of the German right, Volkard Mosler, socialist activist in Chemnitz, Gabby Engelhardt, translator, teacher, and time activist Endo Callahan for joining us. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman. Wiseman.